turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. This will be the last time, I hope, that you turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. I'm planning on being in 2 Peter next week. So, 1 Peter chapter 5. This is the close of the letter, and as is very common in letters in the ancient world, Peter is just going to hit a bunch of different stuff, a bunch of different people. He's going to talk to this group and to that group and say this, and just going to pull a lot of things together. It's scattered, but it's very common in ancient letters. So read along with me. Let's finish out the book of Peter with chapter 5. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who will also share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourself to your elders. All of you, clothe yourself with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble." Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So, Peter starts out to the elders among you. So an elder, the word means old man. It would be pretty much anybody who's 50 years old or older. So to all the old people, Peter says, um, no, you may know, elder is actually, in this case, it's a title. It means old man, but in the church, elder is a title. Now this may be old hat to some of you, or this may be completely new and you've ever heard it. But we're gonna do a little quick survey of the beginnings of the, of the New Testament and talk about what's an elder. Like, why do we have elders? Why do we call elders up to pray? What, who is Peter talking to? So you're, I'm gonna tell you where I am in the scriptures. You're welcome to follow along with me or you can just sit and listen. If there's nobody sitting in front of you, feel free to kick your feet up. We're gonna go through, we're gonna start in the book of Acts. Our story begins in Acts chapter one. This is the beginnings of the church in Acts chapter one. Jesus has died, he's come back to life, and for 40 days, he hangs out on earth with his followers. It's, uh, we're told in other places in scripture, hundreds and hundreds of people see him. Like there's one point where someone's questioning Paul about something about Jesus coming back from the dead, and Paul's answer is, well, if you don't believe me, just go to Jerusalem. I mean, you can't throw a rock without hitting somebody in Jerusalem that saw Jesus come back from the dead. There's just hundreds and hundreds of people, he says, who saw him. So Jesus spends 40 days on earth, and then he goes back to heaven. At this point, we're told there's 120 believers. There's 120 followers of Jesus who are still hanging strong 
They've, they've seen him die. They've seen him come back to life. They're gathered together. So the church is 120. That's, that's smaller than us right now in this room. Ten days later, at the Jewish Feast of Weeks, we call it Pentecost, but that's because that's the that's Greek word that means 50. It's 50 days after Passover. It's a required festival. In the Old Testament law, there's six weekly festivals, one-week festivals that you have to celebrate as a Jew. Three of them you celebrate at home, and three of them, if you can, you go to Jerusalem. And the Feast of Weeks is one of the ones where you're supposed to go to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is jammed full of people who are Jewish. I mean, not just the Jews from Israel who speak Aramaic and Hebrew and who are ethnically Hebrew. These are Jews from everywhere. Jews from the Greek world, the Roman world, the Persian world. Jerusalem is just jammed with all these different languages and all these different cultures. And the Holy Spirit shows up and does this incredible, miraculous work where Peter preaches, and he's preaching in his, his own language, either Hebrew or Aramaic, they're very similar, but everyone can understand him. It doesn't matter what language you speak. When he preaches out in Hebrew, if you speak Greek, you hear Greek. If you speak Latin, you hear Latin. If you speak Persian, you hear Persian. Everybody can understand him, and they're freaked out. Like, what in the world is this? And he preaches the gospel to him, and we're told that 3,000 people become Christians that day because of what they've seen, what they've heard, what happens. They're all there for this Jewish festival. And this guy stands up and says, folks, it's a lot bigger than you think. It's not just the festival of weeks is a harvest festival. It's not just that God has provided food for the harvest. God has provided the Messiah, the guy we've waited for for thousands of years. He's come. Three, so the church goes from 120 to 3,120 in a single day. Can you imagine what that was like? And the church was all ethnically Jewish at that point. Everyone was a Jew from Palestine. Everyone was a Jew from the modern day region of Israel, Lebanon, that that whole Middle Eastern. Now all of a sudden there's 3,000 people and they are from all over the world. Overnight, the church becomes multi-ethnic. And if you've ever hung out in multi-ethnic environments, if you've been around people from other cultures, you know that inevitably then there will be clashes. So I once deeply, deeply offended a Chinese colleague in Singapore because I said to her, oh, come here, look at this. Like, I gave her the finger. Come here, look at this. Because this is how you call a dog. This is how you call a human. You never call a person with your hand up. That, that is giving someone the finger. That's saying you're not worth it. You're, you're not even as good as a dog. People are always hands down. I didn't know that. It's not my culture. We don't do that. Oh, come here. Look at this. I was excited. And wow, was she angry. Now, fortunately, she told me, and I apologize. And cultures come together, you get clashes. And so it happens in chapter 6 of Acts. And I'm actually, I'm going to read this to you because it's really significant for what happens. It says, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, so these are the Jews that aren't from Israel. They're from the Greco-Roman world. They speak Greek. They don't speak Hebrew. The Hellenistic Jews among the Christians complained against the Hebraic Jews. So those are the Jews who are from Israel. They're ethnically Hebrew. They speak Hebrew. 
because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together. So the 12 is the 12 apostles, the guys who were with Jesus the whole time. That's the authority structure of the church. The 12 guys who were with Jesus, they're the leaders. They're in charge. Every problem comes to them. Everybody who wants to donate money, they donate it to them. Everybody who's got an issue, they come to them. Those 12 guys are the leaders. But listen to what they say. They tell everyone, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So the leaders of the church realize this is getting too big for us. We can't do this. If we start taking over, trying to figure out all the food distribution for all these thousands of people, all this issue, then we're not going to do what we need to be doing, which is teaching and preaching and praying. The leaders of the church, the, the, the apostles, say this is what we need to be doing. As the leaders of the church, we need to spend our time in the scriptures, preaching and teaching, and in prayer. And we can delegate authority to these other things. This is actually where we get deacons from. But this is not a sermon on deacons, so hold that for another time. What's important is that they say this is what leaders need to be doing. We need to be doing the scriptures and we need to be doing prayer. And that works really well for about the next 10 years that they just got the apostles on top of the church and when they have administrative things, they delegate authority to other people. And then comes Paul. The Apostle Paul becomes a Christian. And in chapter 13 of Acts, he does what no one has ever done before, what no one has ever considered before, what I don't think anybody has even dreamt of before. He goes on a missions trip. That has never happened in the last 10 plus years of the church. No one has ever traveled intentionally to another country to preach the gospel. I mean, the church in Jerusalem, it's planted other churches in Israel, little daughter churches, but those are all people who were in Israel, got converted and went home, and the bosses are still the apostles at the top. All those little daughter churches, their leaders are the apostles back in Jerusalem. Paul leaves Israel. He goes to Crete. If you've got a Bible that has headings, like he goes to Cyprus, he goes to Pergia, he goes to Pamphylia, he goes to Pisidian Antioch, he goes to Iconium, he goes to Lystra, he goes to Derby. This goes through all of Acts 13 and 14. He travels across to the island of Crete, up to modern day Turkey, up and around through modern day Turkey. These guys aren't Jewish. He's preaching to Greeks and Romans. Not people who worship the God of the Bible, people who worship Apollo and Zeus and Hermes and all, all of this. And then listen to what happens. I'm in Acts chapter 14, verse 21. He's finished this sort of semicircle sweep. They preach, this is Paul and his companions, they preach the gospel in that city, that's Derby, and won a large number of disciples. So everywhere he's gone, he's planted churches. Because people have listened to him, they've believed, they've become Christians, they gather together. He's got all these churches in the Greek world, not the Jewish world. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church 
and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. That's the first time we hear about elders. You have all these new churches that are far away from Jerusalem and that aren't even culturally Jewish anymore. They're a mixture of Greeks and Romans and Gentiles and Jews and all these things. And after Paul makes his trip and plants all these churches, he turns around and goes back through all of them again and they appoint elders. They appoint new leaders for the church. It's not gonna work for those 12 guys in Jerusalem that they can handle the things right here, but they're not gonna be able to handle the things going on everywhere else in the world. And so Paul appoints elders, and that is his pattern throughout all the scriptures. So when he writes to the Philippian church, he also writes to the elders and the deacons. Another word for elder in the Bible is overseer, because they're, they're, they're the leaders, they're the guys in charge. Those two words get used interchangeably. In the same sentence, they'll get called elders and then they'll be called overseers. Everywhere Paul goes that he plants churches, he comes back through and he appoints elders or he sends other people to do it. And we have a couple of his letters to these guys he sent. Most of his letters are written to churches. Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all those are to churches. But Timothy and Titus were men. They were guys, they were, they were protégés of Paul that Paul sent back to a church that he had planted. And in his letters, for instance, in 1 Peter, one of the things he tells, first Peter, uh, f- tells Peter in 1 Peter is all about appointing elders. Here's the qualifications for an elder, he says. Here's the kind of people elders need to be. Here's the kind of character they need to have. And he says the same thing to Titus. He's even more explicit in Titus. This is Titus chapter 1, verse 3. He says to Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, Titus is written 20 years after his first journey. This is Paul's pattern. When he plants churches, he appoints godly men to be the leaders of those churches. And we remember what the apostles said leaders of churches should be doing. You ought to be doing the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer. And that is why we have elders in our church, because That's the pattern we see in the scriptures. Now, as the church grows in time, 200 200 AD, 300 AD, 480, as it gets bigger and bigger, they start creating lots more hierarchies. You may have come from a church that had those. Bishops and cardinals and and, uh, what else? District superintendents and presbyteries. But none of that's in the Bible. Now, that's not good or bad. Cars aren't in the Bible either, and I drove mine here today. There's nothing wrong with that. But we have elders in our church as the authority, the the guys who are in charge, because that's the pattern we see in scripture. And that's what we wanna do. We wanna read the scriptures and we wanna do what it says. Now, it doesn't mean we agree all the time on what everything in the Bible means. One of the qualifications for, for an elder is he has to be the husband of one wife. Some churches think that means you cannot be divorced. That means you can only have ever had one wife, We don't think it means that. We think it means you can't have multiple wives, which was common in many of these cultures. So that's a case where we read the same thing. An elder has to be, literally it says a one woman man. 
Some, some churches say, okay, that means you can't be divorced. Some churches like ours say, no, that means you can't have multiple wives. You have to be faithful to your wife. One man, one woman, married for, like, like that's it. That, that, we understand that pattern of, of what an elder means. We may not all agree on exactly what the Bible means by these things, but that's why we have elders. Because we see that pattern in the scripture that this is how Paul, when he planted churches, did it throughout his whole lifetime. And so we want to follow that pattern. So our elders are in charge of the church. They're the overseers. They specifically devote their time to the scriptures and to prayer. Okay, which begs the question, why do I do all the teaching? Right, we have seven elders. Why don't we have a different guy every week doing the teaching if the elders do the ministry of the scriptures and the ministry of prayer? So another thing that Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy, when he's talking about elders, is this. This is from chapter 5, verse 17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. So Paul says to Timothy, or at least it sounds like he's saying to Timothy, that the elders direct the affairs of the church, but some of them... It's going to be their work. It's going to be their occupation to preach and teach. And it's okay to pay them. The the worker deserves his wages. And that's the pattern that we have decided to follow. Again, I don't think it's wrong when you have churches that have all the elders preach. That's a pattern we've decided on. Most churches have, have decided that same thing, that it works well if we can pay someone to devote themselves to the preaching and to the teaching and to the studying. So I'm an elder. I'm also the pastor. If I resigned being the pastor today, I'm still an elder. Those aren't the same thing. My job is to be the teaching pastor at the church because of what Paul says here, that it's okay to take specific elders and say, all right, we're gonna pay you. This is gonna be your work to to preach and to teach and to study. So you all who generously give money to the church, you'll find me at Cremo with a cup of tea and a Hebrew book in my hand, studying, working, trying to understand. One year when I was overseas as a missionary, I preached every Sunday in an English language church because the pastor was on furlough. And so I did all the preaching. You know, they got two or three hours a week out of me. If that's how much time, I had a job, I had a family. I had, I, they weren't paying me. I had a, the mission that I had to do my work. They had a, I got a few hours you all get a lot better sermons than they did because I have a lot of hours to devote to it. I was telling the worship team this morning, a lot of what I'm doing on Sunday morning when I come in early is I'm just cutting out stuff because we've got way too much material. I've studied way too much. I've I've worked out all these notes and everything. Like, okay, what do we need to talk about today? That's what I'm asking God all the time. Okay, what, what do we need to talk about Today, I know there's all these other things. The scriptures are rich and, and there's so much there, but, but what do you want us to talk about today? You all generously pay me so that I can do exactly what Paul says. It can be my work. It can be my occupation that I study and I preach and I teach. But that's why we have elders and that's who Peter's talking to when he talks to the elders among you. He's talking to the guys who've been appointed to lead that church. All right, congratulations. We're 19 minutes into the sermon and we've done the first word. 
Because to the elders in Peter is one single word. Okay, so word number two. Um, Look, so Peter's only talking. Remember I said at the end of a letter, you're often talking to different little groups. There's seven elders in our church right now. This paragraph applies to seven guys in our church and that's it. I don't know how many elders there were in this church. Uh, It could have been two or three. Elders is always plural. That's interesting. It never says elder one. It's always a group that does leadership in the the early church. It's never one guy. It's never one person that has all the authority, right? I am an elder, but I'm not even first among equals. (laughs) I mean, I am one of the elders. That's it. And as the pastor, they're my bosses. I, I, I report to them. Like, you all can tell me the sermon was terrible and I need to change, and I'll thank you. I may not feel that inside, but I'll definitely thank you for your opinion, right? But when the elders say to me, Jeff, we need to change this, then it changes because that's their job. They oversee the ministry of the word and they pray. And we, and we do that. I mean, we've, you've heard us say this before. We meet for two hours every other week and the first hour is praying for y'all. That, that is, sometimes it's more than the first hour if you all have a lot of problems that week. So it, that, because, and we, we don't do that like, oh, this will be a fun way, because that's what scripture says. That's what elders are supposed to be doing. The ministry of the word and prayer. That's what we're supposed to be doing. So that's what we do. That's why we have elders. All right, maybe, and again, that may be, some, for some of y'all, that's like, yeah, Jeff, move on. I've known this since I was 12. And for others, it may be like, Wow, is that what they mean when they say God have an elder preach? I thought it was just some old guy in the church. But this is what he tells us, elders. And notice we learned something new about elders in this passage. That's why I'm glad it's here. Verse two, be shepherds. Elders pray, they minister the word, but they're also shepherds. And that word means pastor. The word pastor isn't a separate word in the Bible. It's the word shepherd. The elders are shepherds of the flock. I'm a paid pastor, but all the elders are pastoring. All the elders are teaching. All the elders are praying. They're just doing it in lots of different contexts. But, but this is what Peter expects elders to be doing, to shepherd. And look, he tells us how he wants us to do that. Like, do it because you're willing. Do it honestly. Do it eagerly. Don't lord it over people, but be examples to them. I like that. You should be able to look at the elders of the church, the guys who come up here and pray for me. One of the reasons we do that is so you recognize them. You hear their names, you see their faces, you know who they are when we're standing out there talking before and after the service. You should be able to look at us and say that is an example of a godly life. You should be able to look at our marriages and say that's an example of a godly marriage. Okay, we are sinful human beings, but we are called to be examples. And I love what he says next. Again, I just think Peter is such a fun writer. You know, he said elder, which means old man, but, but he's used it as a title. Well, then he turns around and he says, in the same way, youngers. He uses it like it's a title. It's not a title. There's no youngers in the church. But youngerers, submit yourself to your elders. The word submit's a military term in this case. It means to line up behind. We are supposed to be examples to you of a godly life so that you can line up behind us. You can imitate us, you can look. That's what Paul says, follow me, I'm following Christ. 
And that's what we as the elders are called to do. And what you all are called to do is to see that example and to get behind it and to say, oh, yeah, that this, I want to be a part of this. I want to be involved in these things. This is good and right. All of you, Peter says. So elders, youngers, again, there's no such thing. He means, you know, everybody. All of you, clothe yourself with humility towards one another. Really like that example. You know, this, I, I, it may surprise you. I did not wake up in this suit this morning. It's true. It's true. Everything you see, I had to put on. And I had to put it on intentionally. Now, full disclosure, I do not dress myself. All the clothes in my closets are garanimals. Everything is hung together. You remember garanimals so you could match up the animal, right? Everything in my closet is hung together. This shirt goes with this sweater, goes with these pants, and so that I do not make a, a terrible mess of these things. But I had to decide this jacket and these pants are hung together. And then I had to go get, okay, this shirt goes with those pants. And then I need dark socks to go with my dress shoes. And I need a black t-shirt because of the color of this shirt. I need the black belt, not the brown belt. I had to make all these decisions to clothe myself. I actually put on the wrong shoes this morning because it's dark out. I'm up before my family. I sneak downstairs. I slip my feet in and I go outside and I'm locking the front door. We got the lights on. And as I'm locking it, I look down and realize, oh, I'm wearing my brown loafers that I wear with my jeans. That's not the right shoes. So I got to unlock the door, go back inside in the dark, take the shoes off, get the fine right. Clothe yourself. It's intentional. Think about how much time you spend to clothe yourself. Like you have to choose every item. That's what Peter says. That's how we should be treating one another. It should be just as intentional. Our humility with each other should be just as intentional as what you put on today. Why did you get a jacket? Because it's cold. Why did you not get a sweater? Because it's warm. Why do I wear the black shoes? Because the brown ones don't go with suit pants. We ought to be just as intentional in being humble towards each other, in giving each other the benefit of the doubt, in being gracious, in being kind. Humble means we take the lower position. We should be just as intentional with each other about that as we are with the clothes we put on each day because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Did you catch that? I am supposed to be humble to you. I'm supposed to treat you with respect and kindness. I'm supposed to take the lower position. I'm supposed to assume the best of you, not because of you, because of God. God opposes the proud because God doesn't like pride. He likes humility. Now, the way of the world, of course, is I will respond to you. If you're mean to me, I'll be mean to you. If you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. If you show me respect, I'll show you respect. If you're not respectful, I'm not going to be respectful. You hit me, I'll hit you back harder. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That's the normal way of the world, that we respond to each other. So if I come in and I'm having a lousy day, if something's gone wrong, if I've messed something up, and I come in, how do you have to treat me? With humility, with generosity, with kindness, 
Because I deserve it? Well, heavens no, I don't deserve it. I'm being a jerk. Because God. We don't treat each other because of how others treat us. We don't deal with each other on the basis of how we have dealt with each other. I'm not kind to you because you're kind to me. You're not generous with me because I'm generous with you. We are humble with one another because our Lord says he likes that. And he does not like pride. It has nothing to do with each other. It has everything to do with our God. Clothe yourself with humility. And verse six, humble yourself under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, in English, those are two separate sentences because that's the way we write. But the way Peter writes it, they're not separate sentences. They're, they're connected. The second one is explaining the first one. Be humble. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. What does that mean? I mean, I get how to humble myself before you, right? I will be kind to you. I will treat you with respect. I will give you the benefit of the doubt. If you come in here and snap at me or whatever, I will say to myself, oh, of course, he, she, them, they're having a bad day. Of course, I, I get, oh, I wonder what's wrong. Maybe I should check on them. I know how to do that with a person. How do you do that with God? What I'm, it's like, oh, you know, God, if you snap at me, I'll be kind to you anyway, because I'm, I'm gonna humble myself. Under you. How do you do that with God? He tells us, the way you humble yourself before God is you throw your troubles on him. I mean, cast, it means throw. The word means to throw on. We humble ourselves before God by giving him our worries because he's worried about us. When we keep our worries, that's pride. That's us saying, I'll handle this. I don't need you, no, I'm, I'm fine, God, just leave, uh, everything's okay. I'll take care of this, God. When we keep our trouble, our worries, our anxieties, that is pride. Humility is giving them to him and saying, you gotta deal with this. <laughs> I don't know what to do with this. this I, please, you've got to deal with this. I can't stop worrying about this. I can't stop thinking about this. I, this is churning in my mind. We throw that. We launch that onto God. And that, Peter says, is humility. Verse eight, be alert and of sober mind. That's the third time he's told us that in case you're counting. But now, now he tells us something new. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We've talked a lot about adversaries. He's talked a lot about people opposing you and oppressing you and persecuting you. And now he tells us something out. Yeah, you also have another enemy. Like whoever, whatever's going on with them, and I've told you, you know, we're not sure. We just know that there's sort of systematic governmental oppression of Christians coming through at this point. People are suspicious of them because they're not good citizens and they, they don't make the sacrifices like everyone else does. And they don't go to the, the same services that everyone goes to and something's going on. And Peter says, oh, and there's more than that. You've got an enemy. You've got a spiritual being who is trying to harm you as well. There's, there's things behind the fact that, that you're getting hauled before a tribunal because you won't burn a pinch of incense to the emperor and everybody's like, what's up with this guy? Is he a spy for somewhere else? Is, is he from the, why is he doing this? And Peter says, yeah, and behind that, that there is an evil spiritual being, the devil, 
who is at work to harm you. So you need to resist him, Peter says. Stand firm in your faith because you know that suffering's not unusual. You know that all the believers everywhere in the world, it's all, everybody's got suffering. And in his case, I mean, literally, the government is going after people all over the place. It's not just here in modern-day Turkey where he's writing. He said that to us before. Suffering is not unusual. It is normal in the Christian life. And then I love how he ends it. You know, the last couple verses are the, what we would say that, you know, love Jeff at the end. But, but 10, and this is why he ends with amen, 10 and 11, this is him closing out the, the letter. And until then, there have been so many commands in this passage. Just command, command after command after command to elders, command after command after command to, to all of us all together. Do this, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And now here in chapter 10, there's no command. In verse 10 and 11, there's no commands. He ends the letter. There's nothing for you to do. It's just remember the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while because you are going to suffer. They are suffering. You will suffer. God himself will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. It's not forever. Whatever you are enduring, whatever is going on, whatever is tearing you apart, whether it's external or it's internal, whatever it is, Peter says, God will not let it go on forever. I mean, people may want it to go on forever. It may feel like it's going to go on forever. Peter says, no, you will a little while, you will have to suffer. That's true. And he's talked about all the good things that God does with suffering in our lives. Yep, you will have to suffer for a little while, but God himself will restore you. Not you. God himself will do this. God will make you strong. God will make you firm. God will make you steadfast. There's nothing at the very end of Peter's letter, after all he's told us to do, there's nothing to do at the end. God will do this. That's Peter's final word on suffering. God will ultimately take care of it. I mean, he's given us a ton of advice, a ton of things to do, a ton of ways to live. But his final word is God is good. God is great. God is powerful. Yep, you're going to suffer for a little while, but it will not be forever. One day, God, in his power, will stop it. And then it's done. One day, God, in his power, will restore you. I find that just tremendously encouraging. When I think about all the stories I know from y'all, all the things I know happen in my own life, all the missionaries I know around the world from having served with Wycliffe, I find that so encouraging that, that what Peter finally says is, yeah, God, hang in there. God will take care of it. And then, and I'm probably gonna have to answer to him for this, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly. And I think to myself, not the way I preach it. Sorry about that, Peter. It's, if you told me we would start in the middle of August and finish First Peter in the middle of July, in the middle of January, I would have chuckled at you. Um, so let me pray for us as we finish First Peter. You know, did, does any of this strike you? Leadership, lining up behind good examples, being alert, humility. Uh, again, because the end of ancient letters, they're, they're scattershot like this. Any of this strike you? See, see if God has anything to say to you in all that as we pray, and then we'll take communion. So pray with me. Thank you, Lord. Gosh, thank you. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your mercy. 
Uh, Thank you for what Peter says. I take great comfort from these final couple lines that after you have suffered for a little while, then God himself will restore you. God himself will make us strong, firm, and steadfast. And so we say amen to exactly what Peter says. To you, Lord, be the glory forever and ever because you are gracious and you are kind. Wow, the world is a mess and we are, we are sinful We bring some of it on ourselves, but we have an enemy who brings plenty of it on us as well. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray that you will help us all to clothe ourselves with humility. I forget that often. I often revert to the normal worldly way of dealing with people. I deal with people as they deal with me, and I forget what scripture teaches me, and it's not just here. It's in lots of places. Put on humility. I don't think I've ever walked out of the house without having remembered to put on clothes. But I walk out of the house all the time without remembering to put on humility. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would be people who remember to put on humility. I pray we would be people who line up behind good examples and follow them. I pray that we would be people who who are steadfast and, and strong and know that we have an enemy and so we resist him. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that you, Holy Spirit, that you will speak to us. As I'm praying, as we take communion, as we finish out the service and song, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will speak to us. How do you want us to live? How do you want to encourage us? How do you want to challenge us? Who are the people you want us to be as we walk out these doors and go back into the world later on today? And so, Jesus, we pray all of this in your name, for you are our God. Amen.